Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And welcome into AOA, Agriculture of America. Thanks for joining us here on the program today. I'm Jesse Allen. Hopefully you are staying bundled up and staying as warm as possible with this Arctic blast that has been moving through the country here the last few days and expected to continue here the early part of this week ahead. I know I saw some wind chill values, negative 60 in parts of Montana, parts of the Northern Plains dangerously cold wind chills i know it's not good for humans not good for livestock but i do know that um well hats off to a lot of our uh, farmers and ranchers taking care of their livestock out there across the country during this uh, difficult weather stretch old man winter definitely uh packing a punch here in early 2024 well, coming up on the show today, we're going to do our best to take your mind off the cold outside. We're going to talk trade issues with Christine McDaniel. She is with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. That is coming up here on the show today in segment three. Before that, in segment two, we're going to talk with Adam Worthison from Organic Valley. Learn more about the Rural Energy Equity Act and how it could enhance the REAP program. We're going to get to that conversation coming up in a little bit. And at the end of the show today... Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers is going to join us to recap the December ag equipment sales numbers and the year-end numbers. So we're looking forward to that conversation coming up later on here on AOA. First up, though, USDA released a ton of data to the markets back on Friday with the release of the January reports, the WASDE report. We got December 1st grain stocks, the final crop production numbers as well, where USDA pegged final national average corn yield at a record 177.3 bushels per acre, well above the range of pre-report expectations. Soybean yields also climbed to a national average of 50.6 bushels per acre. There was a lot of data that really leaned bearish to the markets. Now, the markets did move off their session lows. That was one positive to take into a three-day holiday weekend, as there are no markets on Monday for the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday. Uh, we did see corn, soybeans finishing down moderately, with uh, March corn down 10 to 3 quarters at 447 on Friday. New crop December corn was 8 lower, 481 at 3 quarters. Soybeans for March, 12 and a quarter lower, 1224 and a quarter new crop november beans down five and a half 1201 and a half on the day we saw march chicago wheat friday down seven to three quarters at 596 march kansas city wheat was down three quarters at 615 and a quarter march spring wheat down a half a penny 699 and a half so it was a better close than what we initially saw when all that data hit the markets on friday morning well, on the Market Talk podcast and radio show Friday afternoon, I had a conversation about the markets and all the data that flew into the markets from USDA on Friday with Christy Vanon Shesith with Vanon and Company and Tommy Grisafi from Advanced Trading. Here are just a few of their comments and reaction to what we saw from USDA on Friday's reports. Let's just start with initial reactions. Christy, I'll go to you first. Initially, got all this data from USDA. What was your big takeaway after seeing the reports? Yeah, um, I pretty much was like, son of a gun. Here we go. This is, uh, this is a lot of bearish information, and that's something we had to dig through. And I think the market did a really good job. 447 is a level on corn that we've talked about quite a bit. 
and that's right where we closed on the day. So I'm going to call the day a win, especially with soybeans closing, you know, 21 cents off of their low as well. But there's a lot we have to work through. We have a record corn yield now, and these are semi-permanent numbers, right? They're never final, final, but they they use this January report to kind of set the tone and say, we think these are pretty close. And so these are the numbers we have to work with moving forward. And that's a really big production number for corn that we have to get through and work through. And I really thought you threw pretty much all the bearish information you could at corn and it did a good job shaking it off. If we do not hold this level, this, you know, 439 to 447 level on corn, there is a price count of 396. It's been a while since we've seen that price count, but if we don't hold it, that is in the books for the corn market right now. Tommy, your thoughts, initial reactions to the USDA numbers. We were uh, live streaming on StreamYard like you taught me how to do. And I did say before uh, the number that I had traveled all over Iowa and I'd met a ton of farmers who were uh, caught really long. I work with a lot of folks in North Dakota. I know that they had a record yield, uh, poor basis. They're like, you know, I have an extra 100,000 bushels of corn. I just didn't think we can go much lower. Could we go much lower? And when a group of farmers comes to you and says, can we go much lower? We probably had to go lower and i i agree the market closed great i was trading as i told you right up till 120 and uh, we even traded two cents higher than settle in corn and we have this long holiday weekend to be honest with y'all i was more worried about what's going on internationally with uh gold up 40 dollars, crude oil we have this long holiday weekend martin luther king holidays on monday and we're not I was worried we come in on uh, Sunday, Monday night and the world's just a wreck and there's some more bombing. So shipping, as you look at shipping across the world, uh, something we talk about a lot now, like we are all experts on shipping. Right. But uh, the we do know there's a problem in the Panama Canal and getting anything from Asia up and through Europe. You know, price of shipping's really exploded. So I thought I thought that was going to uh, hurt the the markets overall. Let's get the bad news out of the way. It was a bearish report. The markets did a great job digesting it. Put Think of it this way, guys. Turn your farmer, you know, we work with farmers. We're rooting for the farmer. Put your end user hat on. I mean, if you mm -hmm. work with 10 ethanol plants, uh, you would be selling puts. You'd be buying calls. You'd be buying futures. The end users getting to buy corn a dollar, two dollars cheaper uh, than the American farmer thought where they're going to sell it. So if you're a foreign country like uh, Japan, China, Mexico, uh, that American corn's on sale and it got a little cheaper today, but I think it's a, a value area here. And once again, that was initial reactions to Friday's USDA reports from Christy Van Onshisith and Tommy Grisafi from this past Friday's Market Talk program. I want to go to a clip from the end of that program as well, where they gave us some final thoughts and some other things to consider. Yeah, I thought Tommy brought up a good point about um, 24. I feel like that's just not talked about right now. Everyone's so frustrated with the prices that we have right now that they're not talking about 24. Um, if we get back to $5, which I think we can for 24, I do think that's probably a, a point that you need to be a little bit um, realistic and say, hey, where are my break-evens? And should I be protecting this some way, somehow? And I think that's very important to be doing. Um, also, all the way out to 25, seeing $5 out there. Both of those are really big levels. Beans a little bit different, right? You're at $12. Um, I don't see as much activity there that people want to be looking at those prices. So I know that this crop can be frustrated. The, the ones you have in the bin can be so frustrated, but we are still in a, a very large carry market for corn. So don't forget to be focusing on that 24 and 25 moving forward throughout spring. Tommy, final thoughts from you? Well, yeah, it's uh, 
bull markets are fun, but over my career in grains, we spend a lot more time at lower prices. We're getting back to uh, those levels. There, we will have vicious, vicious short covering rallies. Bear markets have vicious short covering rallies. Would not surprise me at all to see a 30, 40 cent pop within days in corn on some headlines, some news. But then what are we getting back to? 480 corn, 490 corn. So bear markets have vicious uh, short covering rallies. That is not the start of the next bull market. It's just uh, price action. If the fund's covered and a few other things happen in the world, we could have some uh, dynamic market moves here. Well, you can watch the full conversation as we recap the Friday USDA reports with Christy Van Onshiseth and Tommy Grisafi on the Market Talk YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash at Market Talk Ag to listen to the full conversation. All right, coming up next, we're going to learn more about the Rural Energy Equity Act with Adam Worthison from Organic Valley. He joins us next on AOA. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Did you know that pork is the world's most consumed meat? Pork comprises over one-third of all meat consumed. Pigs were domesticated over 9,000 years ago in 7,000 BC, and there are more than 180 species of pigs. Why pork? Well, it's not just because everybody loves bacon. Historically speaking, pork is a very easy meat to preserve via smoking, curing, or salting. Not only could it keep well before refrigeration, but it also tastes great under various preservation tactics and adaptable to a variety of flavors, spices, and dishes across different cultures and regions. There are twice as many pigs as there are people in Denmark. Did you also know that China is the world's lead pork producer? In 2020, they produced an impressive 41.13 million metric tons of the meat, which equates to almost 91 billion pounds. So the next time you dive into that plate of bacon, know that pork is the world's most consumed meat. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. It's believed the very first official cattle drive took place in 1779. The Spanish joined the American Revolution, wanting to push out British rivals. Louisiana Spanish governor asked Texas for cattle to help feed their troops, and 2,000 head of cattle were gathered and sent to Louisiana. This agricultural history is brought to you by the American Ag Network. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA, Agriculture of America. Joining us now, Adam Orthison, Senior Director of Government and Industry Affairs for Organic Valley. We're talking more about the REAP program and also a, a new act introduced by Senator Peter Welch, the Rural Energy Equity Act, and how that all ties into REAP. And Adam, thanks for joining us on AOA today. Appreciate the time. Hey, Jesse. Glad to be here. Glad to uh, talk with your your audience. Well, for starters, uh, give us, uh, for folks who may not be from, I, mean, I think a lot of folks are familiar with REAP, of course, but for folks who may not, you know, have a, a great definition of what the Rural Energy for America program or REAP is exactly, 
Can you give folks a little bit of a refresher just to kind of set this up for us? Yeah, the Rural Energy for America program, uh, Jesse, is an offering provided by USDA out of rural development. And rural development offers this grant program, um, and it's a loan guarantee program also coupled with that, to small businesses in rural America and farmers in rural America uh, to enhance their uh, renewable energy systems or make their farms more energy efficient. So producers or businesses apply and they can get either um, a cost share to put in a renewable energy system or they can get a loan guarantee um, for you know making their operations more energy efficient. Well, of course, uh, with the REAP program, uh, always looking at uh, small businesses and farms and folks in rural America taking advantage, as you kind of alluded to. And we have Senator Peter Welch uh, from Vermont introduced the Rural Energy Equity Act, uh, trying to enhance REAP a little bit. So walk us through what exactly is in this uh, bill from Senator Welch here that we're looking at. Yeah. I'm glad you asked. I mean, if you think about REAP, right, there is about $50 million a year that goes out to uh, farmers and, and uh, businesses that are looking to take advantage of it. And, you know, as a dairy company like ourselves, as we talk with dairy farmers, we're trying to figure out, okay, what are, what are the things that can make them more resilient on farm? And those things uh, are how do we reduce costs? And if you look at the dairy farm, their biggest costs are going to be um, you know, feed, labor, and then it comes into energy. So trying to help farmers become more energy independent and be able to create their own energy on farm seems to make sense. So what the Rural Energy Equity Act does is it sort of takes REAP and enhances it. And a couple of things it does, one of them that we're excited about is it moves the sort of cost share up from 25% up to 50% and then for some populations up to 75%. So if you think about the other conservation programs that many of your listeners are familiar with, many of them already have a 50 to 75% cost share rate. So why don't we provide that same sort of support for farmers that want to do renewable energy? And renewable energy just makes sense, right? You're buying less off the grid, producing it on farm, and if you can pay for your, your system, it becomes sort of a in the bank energy over the over the years it's not going to be a profit maker for you you're not putting in a solar farm um, but for the most farms that we work with and farms that i've seen do it they're either putting it on their barns or they're doing a pedestal or they're doing something like that in terms of solar so that's one of the things that's up to the cost here and then it also um sort of secures additional funding you know repat 50 million we want to see it sort of stair step to grow all the way to 300 million a year so you know that would be exciting that could be a, a lot of great resources that would help a lot of farmers and a, a lot of rural businesses you know right now we have the ira um, uh, legislation that brought a, a pretty big chunk of funding to reap but that mm -hmm. kind of dies out after the end of 2024 so this is looking at what are we going to do in a farm bill how do we enhance reap and make it more attractive for more farmers and make a bigger impact. Well, and Adam, I think a lot of this ties in as well. Uh, some of the things you alluded to, uh, obviously looking at renewable energy initiatives and and, and reducing our, our carbon footprint, so to speak. There's been a lot of talk surrounding 
you know, that across agriculture, looking at, at reducing our carbon footprint as a whole. So you know, I would think uh, this act and, and getting more support for the REAP program is helping in, in that aspect here as we kind of look at this overall sustainability picture, so to speak, in agriculture. Yeah, I think that's right, Jeff. I mean, we've seen that posture um, happening with companies and happening with government officials and others about, well, how do we reduce our carbon footprint? How do we make farms more sustainable? You know, I think about REAP as it just makes sense. And that's the, when we talk to farmers that are putting in these um, type of renewable energy systems, they're doing it because it makes sense and it's dollars and cents. It reduces their costs, but it also has an added benefit that, you know, if you can reduce your carbon footprint by having renewable energy versus buying off a grid, which, you know, might be coming from other sources of power that aren't as green. So, you know, for us, it's really poor and foremost, how are we helping farmers? So, you know, they're resilient and they're going to be profitable into the future. And renewable energy is part of that story. Renewable energy is definitely part of that story. We're talking with Adam Orthison, Senior Director of Government Industry Affairs for Organic Valley and Adam, uh, while we have you here as well, any other uh, key issues for Organic Valley here as we look ahead uh, into 2024? I know you mentioned Farm Bill, of course. I'm sure that's a, a top of mind issue for many, many folks uh, throughout agriculture. So maybe touch on that or, or any other priorities for Organic Valley here this year. Yeah, well, Jeffy, you know that the Farm Bill got extended out this year, and I'm sure your listeners are familiar with that. But you know, um, we're hard at work working in our trade associations and with our members and educating members of Congress about, well, what's going to help enhance the organic marketplace and what are the tools that are going to help dairy farmers succeed? So, you know, I'm, I, I just had U.S. Senator Brown on a dairy farm last Friday talking about um, the Organic Market Development Act, which looks at resources that help uh, move uh organic commodities up the value chain, something that also is important for all agriculture producers. Um, organic's got kind of some unique needs uh, given just the right size processing that's necessary for organic sort of goods. Um, and then, you know, one of the other pieces we're working on on the dairy side is called the COWS Act, which is converting our waste sustainably. Um, that's been introduced um, by Representative Costa um, and then uh, Senator Padilla, and that looks at helping farmers retrofit their operations um, to deal with, you know, manure up and, and to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions with how they handle their manure. So two of those things that we're excited about, but I think we're all playing this parlor game. Or are we going to have a farm bill in 2024? Um, for our membership and the way we think about it is, you know, you got to be at the table. You got to be putting ideas forward. You got to be advancing them, educating lawmakers, so you know they can reflect on that and and bring it to a, the committee and bring it to a bill when it does come to the opportunity to pass one. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more. It's uh, been an interesting ride, so to speak, in terms of trying to get to a new farm bill, and uh, hopefully we can get something done here in this first quarter ahead of the the presidential election cycle that's already in in full swing. Uh, we'll just have to see. What happens here uh, in Washington, D.C.? Adam, uh, great thoughts before we let you go. Anything else you want to add about the uh, the REAP program and the Rural Energy Equity Act or anything else that we haven't mentioned that you want to uh, share with folks here today? 
Well, I think the, the Rural Energy Equity Act is just one piece in the sort of renewable energy, you know, uh, bucket of ideas. There is also a bill called the Reef Modernization Act. We're supporting that too. That's by Senator Tina Smith and um, Representative Spanberger. So, you know, we're looking at a program with REAP that has been around for, you know, a dozen years. And every farm bill cycle, there's opportunities to improvement. And, and we're looking at kind of these two improvement vehicles, if you want to call it. And, you know, that's what we're going to be focusing with REAP to, to make it work for more farmers and then make it more impactful. Um, you know, farm bills coming down the, the pipe one way or another, and, and we want to be ready for that and we want to have the best ideas um, forward. So, well, Jesse, thanks for your time and glad to be able to join you. Yeah, thank you for the conversation with that. Adam Orthison, Senior Director of Government and Industry Affairs for Organic Valley, joining us here today. Adam, thanks again so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. And once again, Adam Worthison there with Organic Valley. All right, coming up next here on AOA, we're going to have a conversation about trade and some of the issues that we have seen uh, surrounding the lack of new trade deals being done here by the U.S. and more. We're going to have a conversation with Christine McDaniel. She served in the U.S. Treasury at the U.S. Trade Representative's Office in the Commerce Department, and she is currently an economist with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. We're going to have a conversation with her and get her thoughts on what we are looking at here the year ahead. It's some things we need to think about in regards to ag trade and more. We'll be joined by Christine McDaniel next here on AOA. Did you know Henry Ford's Model T was designed to run on either gasoline or corn ethanol? After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop. Over half of all the corn grown in the United States is grown in four states, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, and Nebraska. A typical year has about 800 kernels in 16 rows. Corn will always have an even number of rows on each cob. One variety of corn grown in Peru has kernels so large that they are eaten individually. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA, Agriculture of America. Joining us now, we want to talk about ag exports and some of just the lack of trade agreements that we've seen from this current administration and and much more here. Really, the last, uh, I'd say, five to ten years, uh, our lack of trade agreements has been a little startling. So we're going to bring in an expert to talk about it. She is an economist who has served in the U.S. Treasury, at the Commerce Department, at the U.S. Trade Representative as well. And she is currently uh, with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. We have Christine McDaniel with us here today on AOA. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. Happy New Year. Appreciate you making the time. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year to you. Well, let's dive in. And as I kind of uh, set it up there at the open, I, I know that our our trade agreements have been lacking for the most part here, especially for agriculture. And I, I think it's really had an impact on our ag exports to a certain degree here over the last, um, I'd say, five to 10 years. It's been an interesting 
dynamic and interesting kind of climate here uh, has, hasn't it been over the last few years? Yeah, very different than um, kind of the climate I kind of grew up in, if you will, you know, um, during the, the Bush years where it was really all about, you know, openness, um, you know, going out there, breaking down barriers for U.S. exporters, for U.S. agriculture exporters. And, um, and you know, in the past, as you said, I don't know what, 10 years or so, it's, um, it's just sort of taken a U-turn on that. Yeah, kind of taking a U-turn. And uh, what is it? Some, I think, $18 billion drop uh, around there. We kind of closed out 2023 with compared to the year prior. I mean, that's a numbers like that are staggering to take a look at, aren't they, Christine? Yeah. So the final numbers are not, are not in yet, but yeah, the um, if you um, annualize the data, you know, uh, see what we have so far up until it was like October or so, and then uh, compare that with you know the same period from the uh, year before, then, then yeah, we're on track to be down about 18 billion. We'll see what happens, uh, what comes in for November, December, but regardless, you know, U.S. ag exports are down. Um, and you know, it's not just one thing. I, I went, I, I love data, so I went down the rabbit holes of of, um, of the trade data for a couple of days, and you know, and every every um, every crop, every food, has a somewhat different story, and sometimes it's climate. Uh, just you know, got a big drought, or had a huge rainfall, or or the railways were um, were not properly functioning or uh, there are problems at the border um, or, you know, U.S., um, some of our crops are just not as price competitive um, right now because of the strong dollar and our competitors like Brazil, they've got a pretty weak currency. Um, so, you know, a lot of this stuff is sort of out of out of um, the government's hands uh, to, to mostly. But I mean, one thing they can do, you know, is go out there and 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 form stronger trade ties with with other um, other countries. And, um, you know, a trade deal with a particular country isn't going to necessarily make or break things, but it sure can't hurt. Uh, and um, you kind of need to keep doing that, because if you don't, you know, other countries will step in and there's always going to be something that, you know, comes up good or bad in, in agriculture. I mean, all your listeners know that way better than I do. Um, but, you know, so that's why we need these strong trade ties uh, to, um, to to kind of fill in the gaps when, you know, when those gaps appear. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know you recently uh, wrote a, uh, a commentary for Forbes and, and talking about this uh, titled A Blue Christmas for U.S. Farmers. And I just we talk a lot about China and the U.S. It, it's it always seems like when we talk trade, we're like, oh, well, China's not here. China's not buying our ag commodities, this and that. Um, and I think sometimes we get lost and caught up in just that that U.S.-China relationship because they are our biggest trading partner, but there are a lot of other opportunities that we have uh, either missed or we, we've just kind of lost track of here over the last few years, I think, when in, in terms of you know Japan and some of the, uh, the, the TPP, I know, in, in many of the Asian countries. Uh, we're working on a deal with the European Union right now. I, I guess... My point being, we get caught up a lot in terms of the U.S.-China relationship and maybe forget about some of our other trading partners, don't we? 
Yeah, I mean, U.S. agriculture. I mean, trade is so important. I mean, twenty percent of, um, of of food production, right, gets exported. Twenty percent. That's so, that's much bigger than the average uh, what we see in, in goods or manufacturing. So, uh, our U.S. farmers are very exposed to to trade, uh, you know, ups and downs. And um, and so they really need Washington to you know be out there fighting for them, but um, but yeah, I mean the China, the geopolitical tensions with China, I mean it's definitely um, hurt uh, U.S. farmers. The whole idea, I mean, b- behind uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, you know, it started out as um, you know kind of as a way to to try to spread good rules, you know, across the Pacific on trade. Um, and, um, and then things got going and with Asia being, you know, just this huge growing region of the world, um, then it just became more and more about market access. And then when we pulled out of there, uh, you know, that was a big blow. Now the last administration, they did try, they did salvage, uh, the Japanese market through, um, some, some special uh, trade tactic and uh, tactical negotiations there, which was a good save. But, you know, in, but the U.S. U.S. exports on ag for China, you know, still comes with some political baggage. And so when Brazil steps up, you know, and they've got, you know, bumper crops, um, you know, weak currency, so very attractive prices, um, you know, they don't have that geopolitical baggage. So Brazil's really kind of stepping up and, and uh, taking taking the the crown from the U.S., if you will, on a number of crops. Um, China's still a huge buyer of U.S. agriculture, no doubt about it, but it's just that the U.S. isn't the, the, the top global seller of a lot of these uh, key crops like we used to be. I know too, Christine. Uh, I know you've been doing some work on looking at the Inflation Reduction Act's uh, production tax credits for EV batteries and wind energy, and really, you know, the, the Biden administration's push uh, for these things you know evs and and climate smart commodities and things like that is that something on the horizon from your economist point of view that you could see potentially change some of our ag export flows or things like that i I guess i'm i'm crystal balling here maybe a little bit but (laughs) is that something that you're maybe wondering about on the horizon possibly uh, yeah, well, you know, Chris, uh, Chris of as we do at the beginning of the year, but, um, I mean, so one thing that has, has happened is, um, the, the, for example, for instance, the corn shipments. Okay. So we've got, um, you know, for, for years, our federal government's been incentivizing the use of, of uh, domestically grown corn for ethanol. Right. And that's been added mm-hmm. to gasoline. Um, and I think about, I don't know, a third to 40% or so of U.S. corn goat, um, goes to supply these domestic mills to make the ethanol to use as transportation fuel. But if EVs become, you know, as EVs become a greater and greater share of, of the fleet that's on our roads, well, then that demand will, uh, will decline, right. Um, as more electric vehicles hit the road. And, um, and then that means that, you know, we won't have, um, you know, that demand won't be there anymore. So um, if, (laughs) so that, you know, and then meanwhile, if that all happens and then, you know, Brazil has really stepped in and and kind of taken over as the lead, um, you know, corn exporter for these huge markets, then, yeah, I mean, U.S. corn producers will definitely see a much, much smaller market um, unless, you know, things change and, you know, things could change. But, um, but, 
yeah, it's 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 all you know, it's all very fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not it's all not all that bad. I mean, we do have. Um, I mean, we are making ethanol. We're feeding it to livestock. You know, we're making renewable diesels. Um, so we're be- trying to become more energy independent. Um, but, you know, all that independence, it all sounds very good. But, you know, there's always a trade-off, right? And so for um, for ag, you know, as the U.S. becomes more energy independent, um, you know, that means that there's uh, less um, there's less attention to international trade. And, um, and, you know, that has boomerang effects that are not good for U.S. Uh, food exporters. I couldn't agree more. Christine, before we uh, let you go here today, wrap it up, any final thoughts, anything else you would want to share or reiterate with folks? I know it's going to be an interesting year ahead. It's, of course, a presidential election year with that silly season, as I I like to call it, is is already underway. So one has to wonder what that could do in terms of or lack of getting any new export deals done, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, still a lot of opportunity ahead here in 2024, I'd have to think. Uh, any final thoughts you would share with us today about uh, U.S. ag trade? Well, just, you know, I, I think, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it is going to be the silly season. Um, you know, as some a colleague was, you know, said recently, just, you know, when things go crazy, just try to keep it boring and follow the rules. Um and it does not look like this administration is interested in, in uh, any new trade deals. So in that case, I guess the best you, we can hope for is they don't backslide um, on any on any other uh, on existing trade that we have. And, you know, it's it's um, it's really important for, you know, for for states that are interested in agriculture to make their voices heard uh, to their representatives in Washington about how important trade is for them. Because, you know, there's a lot of other people who are, you know, trying to um, counter that. So we just kind of got to keep fighting the good fight on that one. With that, Christine McDaniel with Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Christine, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Really appreciate the conversation. We'll have to have you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jesse. Once again, great conversation there with Christine McDaniel from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. All right, coming up next, before we wrap up today's AOA, we're going to talk with Kurt Blades from the Association of Equipment Manufacturers about the December equipment sales numbers and the year-end numbers. He joins us next on AOA, Agriculture of America. Did you know that pork is the world's most consumed meat? Pork comprises over one-third of all meat consumed. Pigs were domesticated over 9,000 years ago in 7,000 BC, and there are more than 180 species of pigs. Why pork? Well, it's not just because everybody loves bacon. Historically speaking, pork is a very easy meat to preserve via smoking, curing, or salting. Not only could it keep well before refrigeration, but it also tastes great under various preservation tactics and adaptable to a variety of flavors, spices, and dishes across different cultures and regions. There are twice as many pigs as there are people in Denmark. Did you also know that China is the world's lead pork producer? In 2020, they produced an impressive 41.13 million metric tons of the meat, which equates to almost 91 billion pounds. So the next time you dive into that plate of bacon, know that pork is the world's most consumed meat. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business than ever before. 
We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers, and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger, Larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Looking back into the history of agriculture, the first major pork packing plant was started in Cincinnati, Ohio by Alicia Mills in the year 1818. Nicknamed the Porkopolis, 85,000 head of pigs were processed at this plant each year. This ag history is brought to you by the American Ag Network. information America's farmers and ranchers need, AOA. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And joining us now here on the program as we take a look at the December equipment numbers, equipment sales numbers from the Association of Equipment Manufacturers and look at the year-to-date numbers for 2023 as well. AEM Senior Vice President Kurt Blades is joining us here today. Kurt, thanks for joining us again on AOA. Hope you're doing well. You bet. Thanks for having me on today. Well, let's uh, let's start with the December numbers first, and then we can uh, talk about 2023 as a whole. And it looked like to me some of the headlines here, uh, Combine Harvesters saw solid gains to close out the year. Um, talk about some of the December numbers on the U.S. side first. What did we see? Yeah. Well, as we look at the United States uh, specifically, I mean, December is is always sort of an interesting month because we're approaching, you know, sort of the end of the year. We got tax season. It's really it's when begin when farmers begin to think. So you know, this year in December, we actually did see some some softness kind of across the board. But I think that's largely, you know, because we're we were dealing with some strong numbers in combines for all the previous months, and row crop tractors have been performing quite well for all the previous months. So there's a little bit of catch up that just sort of had to happen in December. So looking at the overall numbers, we were down kind of across the board with under 40 horsepower tractors, you know, uh, 40 to 100 horsepower tractors. We're both off for the month of December. Articulate four wheel drives were down about five percent for the month of December. Uh, combines were down about 15% for the month of December. But the bigger story is, what does that mean for the entire year? So, you know, one month does not a trend make. I think we're now looking at a total picture for 2023, and that's that's kind of where the, the, where the interesting story is right now. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more on the U.S. side as we wrap 
up the year 2023. What were some of the uh, the big numbers that stood out to you, Kurt? Well, I think the the big headlines for 2023 are articulated four wheel drives seeing a growth of about 30 percent from 2023 versus 2022. That's a big number, and especially when you consider those are considered purchases. Similarly, combines were were flat to up just a little bit, about two percent up. You know, 2023 versus 2022. So again, big numbers. Those are things that we should be particularly excited about. Add to that 100 plus horsepower tractors up about 5% for the entire year. Again, so if you look at the three kind of key ag markets, over 100 horsepower, articulated four-wheel drives and combines, that's the real story. Mm -hmm. The other side of Mm -hmm. that story is smaller tractors you know, they were soft. They continue to be, there continues to be softness in that subcompact under 40 horsepower market range, down about 11% for the year. And 40 to 100 being down 10% for the year. Obviously, we're seeing some softness there. How about let's go over and look at the Canadian numbers too as we recap uh, the month of December and for the year of 2023. What did you see on the Canadian side? Well, Canada and the United States almost look, you know, one-to-one. A little bit softer in Canada uh, for the month of December, kind of across the board. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, they kind of look the same, where we're seeing, you know, combines for the year up about 5%. Articulated four-wheel drive tractors up about 50%. Those are great numbers. And then 100-plus uh, uh, horsepower tractors up about 2%. So you kind of look at those three numbers. We saw similar things on the small tractor side where they were actually down quite a little bit more, so about 17% for uh, subcompacts. So we're seeing the same thing basically on both sides of the board. Well, Kurt, uh, as we look ahead to 2024, what what is on the horizon in, in your eyes here as you look at the full ag equipment space here moving ahead into this year what are maybe some of the the challenges uh, in front of us uh, do some of the same challenges remain from 2023 potentially or or what are some of the uh, exciting things you're looking forward to here in the year ahead kurt well i think the biggest thing we look at when we look at 2024 is you know we saw in the end of 23 really kind of a continuation of what we're expecting for a while there is some softness in the ag market, and that's going to be reflected in the capital market for a while. Interest uh, rates are going to continue to, to put some downward pressure on equipment sales. We know that. But at the end of the day, farmers still are producing crops, you know, year after year. We still got to feed the world. So at some point, equipment does have to be replaced. So we see the kind of the fundamental demand going to be, uh, you know, continue to be there. But some of that incremental demand that might be based off of, you know, over over optimism. You know, I think there's some storm clouds that we've got to be on the on the lookout for. The flip side of that, boy, technology is exciting, and mm-hmm. farmers taking advantage of new technology, whether it's new harvesting technology or new tractors technology or new tillage uh, technology, and even even uh, uh, you know tillage practices. That's going to continue to be the story as it was in 22 and 23. That's going to continue to be the story moving forward for the next few years. 
Well, and Kurt, I know uh, we got some big events coming up here over the next few months. Uh, things like the National Farm Machinery Show, the World Ag Expo, and of course, Commodity Classic, a big one where, you know, thinking about some of that new technology, folks are going to get a up close and personal look at a lot of that new ag equipment technology here in the months ahead, aren't they, Kurt? You bet. In fact, I would encourage all of your listeners, if they haven't booked their flights to Houston, to Commodity Classic at the end of uh, end of February, make plans to do so. It's going to be the largest one ever. More show floor space, more show floor space than ever. It's going to be pretty exciting. And some of that latest and greatest technology kind of got an early look. Oh, it's going to be released just right there. So, pretty neat time to see that new equipment for the first time in person. Kick a few tires. Yeah, and I know we're looking forward to it as well. We're going to be there at Commodity Classic coming up here at the end of February. And we do appreciate the time and the insight into the December uh, Ag Equipment numbers and the 2023 numbers as a whole. And folks can learn more AEM.org with that. Kurt Blades, Senior Vice President for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Kurt, always great to talk with you. Thanks for joining us today. You bet. Thanks for having me on today. Always enjoy a conversation with Kurt Blades from the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Okay, we're out of time on AOA today. Coming up tomorrow on the show, we'll get an update on the weather situation with John Baranek from DTN. We'll talk markets with Darren Newsom from Bar Chart. We'll also talk farm policy, talk about the situation in Washington, D.C. with Josh Bakey from Farm Progress and a conversation with Alan Schaefer from the Engine Technology Forum. All that and more is coming up on tomorrow's AOA. Stay warm out there across the country. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Did you know Henry Ford's Model T was designed to run on either gasoline or corn ethanol? After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop. Over half of all the corn grown in the United States is grown in four states, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, and Nebraska. A typical year has about 800 kernels in 16 rows. Corn will always have an even number of rows on each cob. One variety of corn grown in Peru has kernels so large that they are eaten individually. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. In the early 1500s, the U.S.'s first cattle are said to have arrived in Florida. Brought here by Spanish explorer and conquistador Juan Ponce de Leon. Today, the U.S.'s cattle herd size is at its lowest level since 1952, with U.S. beef producers being recognized as the global leaders in sustainability when it comes to beef production. These egg facts are brought to you by the American Egg Network. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network.